0: CHAPTER Seven. Tidings from Sue a day or two after passed across Jude like a withering blast. Before reading the letter, he was led to suspect that its contents were of a somewhat serious kind by catching sight of the signature, which was in her full name, never used in her correspondence with him since her first note. My dear Jude, I have something to tell you which you perhaps will not be surprised to hear, though certainly it may strike you as being accelerated, as the railway companies say of their trains. Mr. Philotston and I are to be married quite soon, in three or four weeks. We had intended, as you know, to wait until I had gone through my course of training and obtained my certificate so as to assist him, if necessary, in the teaching. But he generously says he does not see any object in waiting. Now I am not at the training school. It is so good of him because my awkwardness in my situation has come about by my fault in getting expelled. Wish me joy. Remember, I say, you are too, and you mustn't refuse. Your affectionate cousin, Susanna Florence May Bridehead. Jude staggered under the news, could eat no breakfast, and kept on drinking tea because his mouth was so dry. Then presently he went back to his work, and laughed the usual bitter laugh of a man so confronted. Everything seemed turning to satire, and yet, what could the poor girl do, he asked himself, and felt worse than shedding tears. "'Oh, Susanna, Florence, Mary,' he said as he worked, "'you don't know what marriage means.' Could it be possible that his announcement of his own marriage had pricked her on to this, just as his visit to her when in liquor may have pricked her on to engagement?' To be sure, there seemed to exist these other and sufficient reasons, practical and social, for her decision. But Sue was not a very practical or calculating person, and he was compelled to think that a pique at having his secret sprung upon her had moved her to give way to Filotson's pro probable representations that the best course to prove how unfounded were the suspicions of the school authorities would be to marry him offhand as in fulfillment of an ordinary engagement. Sue had, in fact, been placed in an awkward corner. Poor Sue. He determined to play the Spartan, to make the best of it, and support her. But he could not write the requested good wishes for a day or two. Meanwhile, there came another note from his impatient little dear. "'Jude, will you give me away?' I have nobody else who could do it so conveniently as you, being the only married relation I have here on the spot, even if my father were friendly enough to be willing, which he isn't. I hope you won't think of it as trouble. I have been looking at the marriage service in the prayer book, and it seems to me very humiliating that a giver-away should be required at all. According to the ceremony, as there printed, my bridegroom chooses me of his own will and pleasure— but I don't choose him. Somebody gives me to him, like a she-ass, or a she-goat, or any other domestic animal. Bless your exalted views of woman, O churchman. But I forget, I am no longer privileged to tease you. Ever. Susanna Florence Mary Bridehead. Jude screwed himself up to heroic key and replied, My dear Sue, of course I wish you joy. And Also, of course, I will give you away. What I suggest is that, as you have no house of your own, you do not marry from your school friends, but from mine. It would be more proper, I think, since I am, as you say, the person nearest related to you in this part of the world. I don't see why you sign your letter in such a new and terribly formal way. Surely you care a bit about me still. Ever your affectionate, Jude." what had jarred on him even more than the signature was a little sting he had been silent on the phrase married relation what an idiot it made him seem as her lover if sue had written that in satire he could hardly forgive her if in suffering ah, that was another thing his offer of his lodging must have commended itself to felotsden at any rate for the schoolmaster sent him a line of warm thanks accepting the convenience Sue also thanked him. Jude immediately moved into more commodious quarters, as much to escape the espionage of the suspicious landlady, who had been one cause of Sue's unpleasant experience as for the sake of room. Then Sue wrote to tell him the day fixed for the wedding, and Jude decided, after inquiry, that she should come into residence on the following Saturday, which would allow of a ten-day stay in the city prior to the ceremony, sufficiently representing a nominal residence of fifteen. She arrived by the ten o'clock train on the aforesaid. Jude, not going to meet her at the station by her special request that he should not lose a morning's work and pay, she said, if this were her true reason. But so well by this time did he know, Sue, that the remembrance of their mutual sensitiveness at emotional crisis might, he thought, have weighed with her in this. When he came home to dinner, she had taken possession of her apartment. She lived in the same home with him, but on a different floor, and they saw little of each other, an occasional supper being the only meal they took together when Sue's manner was something like that of a scared child. What she felt, he did not know. Their conversation was mechanical, though she did not look pale or ill. Philotsden came frequently, but mostly when Jude was absent. On the morning of the wedding, when Jude had given himself a holiday, Sue and her cousin had breakfast together for the first and last time during this curious interval in his room, the parlor, which he had hired for the period of Sue's residence. Seeing, as women do, how helpless he was in making the place comfortable, she bustled about. "'What's the matter, Jude?' she said suddenly. He was leaning with his elbows on the table, and his chin on his hands, looking into a futurity which seemed to be sketched out on the tablecloth. "'No, oh, nothing. You are father, you know. That's what they call the man who gives you away. Jude could have said, age entitles him to be called that, but he would not annoy her by such a cheap retort.' She talked incessantly, as if she dreaded his indulgence in reflection, and before the meal was over, both he and she wished they had not put such confidence in their new view of things, and had taken breakfast apart. What oppressed Jude was the thought that, having done a wrong thing of this sort himself, he was aiding and abetting the woman he loved in doing a like-wrong thing, instead of imploring and warning her against it. It was on his tongue to say— you have quite made up your mind? After breakfast, they went out on an errand together, moved by a mutual thought that it was the last opportunity they would have of indulging in unceremonious companionship. By the irony of fate, and the curious trick in Sue's nature of tempting providence at critical times, she took his arm as they walked through the muddy street, a thing she had never done before in her life and on turning the corner they found themselves close to a gray perpendicular church with a low-pitched roof, the Church of St. Thomas. That's the church, said Jude, where I am to be married? Yes. Indeed, she exclaimed with curiosity. How I should like to go in and see what the spot is like where I am so soon to kneel and to do it. He passively acquiesced in her wish to go in, and they entered by the western door. The only person inside the gloomy building was a chairwoman cleaning. Sue still held Jude's arm, almost as if she loved him. Cruelly sweet, indeed, she had been to him that morning, but his thoughts of penance in store for her were tempered by an ache. I can find no way how a blow should fall such as final falls on men, nor prove too much for your womanhood. They strolled undemonstratively up the nave toward the altar railing, which they stood against in silence, turning then and walking down the nave again, her hand still on his arm, precisely like a couple just married. The too suggestive incident, entirely of her making, nearly broke down Jude. I like to do things like this, she said in the delicate voice of an epicure in emotions, which left no doubt that she spoke the truth. I know you do, said Jude. They're interesting, because they've probably never been done before. I shall walk down the church like this with my husband in about two hours, shan't I? No doubt you will. Was it like this when you were married? Good God, Sue, don't be so awfully merciless. There, dear one, I didn't mean it. Ah, you are vexed, she said regretfully, as she blinked away an excess of Eye moisture, and I promised never to vex you. I suppose I ought not to have asked you to bring me in here. Oh, I oughtn't. I see it now. My curiosity to hunt up a new sensation always leads me into these scrapes. Forgive me. You will, won't you, Jude? The appeal was so remorseful that Jude's eyes were even wetter than hers, and he pressed her hand for yes. Now we'll hurry away, and I won't do it any more she continued humbly, and they came out of the building. Sue intended to go on to the station to meet Philotston, but the first person they encountered on entering the main street was the schoolmaster himself, whose train had arrived sooner than Sue expected. There was nothing really too demure in her leaning on Jude's arm, but she withdrew her hand and Jude thought that Philotston had looked surprised. "'We've been doing such a funny thing,' said she, smiling candidly. "'We've been to the church, rehearsing, as it were. "'Haven't we, Jude?' "'How?' said Philotston curiously. Jude inwardly deplored what he thought to be unnecessary frankness, but she had gone too far not to explain it all, which she accordingly did, telling him how they had marched up to the altar. Seeing how puzzled Philotston seemed, "'Jude said as cheerfully as he could, "'I'm going to buy her another little present. "'Will you both come to the shop with me?' "'No,' said Sue. "'I'll go on to the house with him.' "'And requesting her lover not to be a long time, "'she departed with the schoolmaster.' "'Jude soon joined them at his rooms, "'and shortly after they prepared for the ceremony. "'Felotston's hair was brushed to a painful extent,' and his shirt-collar appeared stiffer than it had been for the previous twenty years. Beyond this, he looked dignified and thoughtful, and altogether a man of whom it was not unsafe to predict that he would make a kind and considerate husband. That he adored Sue was obvious, and that she could almost be seen to feel that she was undeserving his adoration. Although the distance was so short, he had hired a fly from the Red Lion, and six or seven women and children had gathered by the door when they came out. The schoolmaster and Sue were unknown, though Jude was getting to be recognized as a citizen, and the couple were judged to be of some relations of his from a distance, nobody supposing Sue to have been a recent pupil at the training school. In the carriage, Jude took from his pocket his extra little wedding present, which turned out to be two or three yards of white tulle, which he threw over her bonnet and all, as a veil. "'It looks so odd over a bonnet,' she said. "'I'll take the bonnet off.' "'Oh, no, let it stay,' said Philotston, and she obeyed. When they had passed up the church and were standing in their places, Jude found that the antecedent visit had certainly taken off the edge of this performance. But by the time they were halfway on with the service, he wished from his heart that he had not undertaken the business of giving her away.' How could Sue have had the temerity to ask him to do it, a cruelty possibly to herself as well as to him? Women were different from men in such matters. Was it that they were, instead of more sensitive as reputed, more callous and less romantic? Or were they more heroic? Or was Sue simply so perverse that she wilfully gave herself and him pain for the odd and mournful luxury of practicing long-suffering in her own person and of being touched with tender pity for him at having made him practice it? He could perceive that her face was nervously set, and when they reached the trying ordeal of Jude giving her to Philotston, she could hardly command herself, rather, however, as it seemed from her knowledge of what her cousin must feel, whom she needed not have had there at all, than from self-consideration. Possibly, she would go on inflicting such pains again and again, and grieving for the sufferer again and again, in all her colossal inconsistency. Philotston seemed not to notice, to be surrounded by a mist which prevented his seeing the emotions of others. As soon as they had signed their names and come away, and the suspense was over, Jude felt relieved. The meal at his lodging was a very simple affair, and at two o'clock they went off. In crossing the pavement to the fly, she looked back, and there was a frightened light in her eyes. Could it be that Sue had acted with such unusual foolishness as to plunge into she knew not what for the sake of asserting her independence of him, of retaliating on him for his secrecy? Perhaps Sue was thus venturesome with men because she was childishly ignorant of that side of their natures, which wore out women's hearts and lives.' When her foot was on the carriage step, she turned round, saying that she had forgotten something. Jude and the landlady offered to get it. No, she said, running back. It is my handkerchief. I know where I left it. Jude followed her back. She had found it, and came holding it in her hand. She looked into his eyes with her own tearful ones, and her lips suddenly parted as if she were going to avow something. But she went on, and whatever she had meant to say remained unspoken. Chapter 8. Jude wondered if she had really left her handkerchief behind, or whether it were that she had miserably wished to tell him of a love that at the last moment she could not bring herself to express. He could not stay in his silent lodging when they were gone, and fearing that he might be tempted to drown his misery in alcohol, he went upstairs, changed his dark clothes for his white, his thin boots for his thick, and proceeded to his customary work for the afternoon, but in the cathedral, he seemed to hear a voice behind him and to be possessed with the idea that she would come back. She could not possibly go home with Philotston. He fancied the feeling grew and stirred the moment that the clock struck the last of his working hours. He threw down his tools and rushed homeward. Has anybody been for me?" he asked. Nobody had been there. As he could claim the downstairs sitting room till twelve o'clock that night, he sat in it till all the evening, and even when the clock had struck eleven, and the family had retired, he could not shake off the feeling that she would come back and sleep in the little room adjoining his own, in which she had slept so many previous days. Her actions were always unpredictable. Why should she not come? Gladly would he have compounded for the denial of her as a sweetheart and a wife by having her live thus as a fellow lodger and friend, even on the most distant terms. His supper still remained spread, and going to the front door, and softly settling it open, he returned to the room and sat as watchers sit on old midsummer eves, expecting the phantom of the beloved, but she did not come. Having indulged in this wild hope, he went upstairs and looked out the window, and pictured her through the evening journey to London, whether she and Philotsden had gone for their holiday, their rattling along through the damp night to their hotel, under the same sky of ribbed clouds that, as he beheld through which the moon showed in its position rather than its shape, and one or two of the larger stars made themselves visible as faint nebula only, It was a new beginning of Sue's history. He projected his mind into the future, and saw her with children, more or less in her own likeness around her. But the consolation of regarding them as continuation of her identity was denied to him, as to all such dreamers, by the willfulness of nature in not allowing issue from one parent alone. Every desired renewal of an existence is debased by being half-alloy. If, at the estrangement or death of my lost love, I could go and see her child, hers solely, there would be some comfort in it, said Jude. And then he again uneasily saw, as he had latterly seen, with more and more frequency, the scorn of nature's for man's finer emotions and her lack of interest in his aspirations. The oppressive strength of his affection for Sue showed itself on the morrow, and following days yet more clearly. He could no longer endure the light of Melchester lamps. The sunshine was as drab paint, and the blue sky as zinc. Then he received news that his old aunt was dangerously ill at Marygreen, which intelligence almost coincided with a letter from his former employer at Christminster, who offered him permanent work of a good class if he would come back. The letters were almost a relief to him. He started to visit Aunt Drusilla and resolved to go onward to Christminster to see what worth there might be in the builder's offer. Jude found his aunt even worse than the communication from the widow Edlin had led him to expect. There was every possibility of her lingering on for weeks or months, though little likelihood. He wrote to Sue, informing her of the state of her aunt, and suggesting that she might like to see her aged relative alive. He would meet her at Alfredston Road the following evening, Monday, on his way back from Christminster if she could come by the up-train which crossed his down-train at the station. Next morning accordingly, he went on to Christminster, intending to return to Alfredston soon enough to keep the suggested appointment with Sue. The City of Learning wore an estranged look, and he had lost all feeling for its associations. Yet, as the sun made vivid lights and shades of the mullioned architecture of the façades, and drew patterns of the crinkled battlements of the young turf of the quadrangles, Jude thought he had never seen the place look more beautiful. He came to the street in which he had first beheld Sue, the chair she had occupied when, leaning over her ecclesiastical scrolls, a hog-hair brush in her hand, her girlish figure had arrested the gaze of his inquiring eyes, stood precisely in its former spot, empty. It was as if she were dead, and nobody had been found capable of succeeding her in that artistic pursuit. Hers was now the city phantom, while those of the intellectual and devotional worthies who had once moved him to emotion were no longer able to assert their presence there. However, here he was, and in fulfillment of his intention he went on to his former lodging in Beersheba, near the ritualistic church of St. Silas. The old landlady who opened the door seemed glad to see him again, and bringing some lunch informed him that the builder who had employed him had called to inquire his address. Jude went on to the stone yard where he had worked, but the old sheds and bankers were distasteful to him he felt it impossible to engage himself to return and stay in this place of vanished dreams. He longed for the hour of the homeward train to Alfredston, where he might probably meet Sue. Then, for one ghastly half-hour of depression caused by these scenes, there returned upon him that feeling which had been his undoing more than once, that he was not worth the trouble of being taken care of either by himself or others and during this half-hour he met Tinker Taylor, the bankrupt ecclesiastical ironmonger at Fourways, who proposed that they should adjoin to a bar and drink together. They walked along the street till they stood before one of the great palpating centers of Christminster life, the inn wherein he had formerly responded to the challenge to rehearse the Creed in Latin, now a popular tavern with a spacious inviting entrance which gave admittance to a bar that had been entirely renovated and refitted in modern style since Jude's residence here. Tinker Taylor drank off his glass and departed, saying it was too stylish a place for him to feel at home in, unless he was drunker than he had money to be just then. Jude was longer finishing his, and stood abstractedly silent in the, for the minute, almost empty place. The bar had been gutted and newly arranged throughout, mahogany fixtures having taken the place of the old painted ones, while at the back of the standing space there were stuffed sofa benches. The room was divided into compartments in the approved manner, between which were screens of ground glass in mahogany framing, to prevent toppers in one compartment being put to the blush by the recognitions of those in the next. On the inside of the counter, two barmaids leant forward over the white-handled beer engines, and the row of little silvered taps inside dripping into a pewter trough. Feeling tired and having nothing more to do till the train left, Jude sat down on one of the sofas. At the back of the barmaid's rose beveled-edge mirrors with glass shelves running along their front, on which stood precious liquids that Jude did not know the name of, in bottles of topaz, sapphire, ruby, and amethyst. The moment was enlivened by the entrance of some customers into the next compartment, and the starting of the mechanical tell-tale of moneys received which emitted a ting-ting every time a coin was put in. The barmaid attending to this compartment was invisible to Jude's direct glance, though a reflection of her back in the glass behind her was occasionally caught by his eyes. He had only observed this listlessly, when she turned her face for a moment to the glass to set her hair tidy. Then he was amazed to discover that the face was Arabella's. If she had come on to his compartment, she would have seen him, but she did not, and thus being presided over by the maiden on the other side. Abby was in a black gown with white linen cuffs and a broad white collar, and her figure more developed than formerly was accentuated by a bunch of daffodils that she wore on her left bosom. In the compartment she served stood an electroplated fountain of water over a spirit lamp, whose blue flame sent a steam from the top, all this being visible to him only in the mirror behind her, which also reflected the faces of the men she was attending to, one of them a handsome, dissipated young fellow, possibly an undergraduate who had been relating to her an experience of some humorous sort. "'Oh, Mr. Cockman, now! How can you tell such a tale to me in my innocence?' she cried gaily. "'Mr. Cockman, what do you use to make your mustache curl so beautiful?' As the young man was clean-shaven, the retort provoked a laugh at his expense. "'Come,' said he. "'I'll have a curse and a light, please.' She served the liquor from one of the lovely bottles, and, striking a match, held it to his cigarette, with ministering archness while he whiffed. "'Well, have you heard from your husband lately, my dear?' he asked. "'Not a sound,' said she. Well, where is he?' "'I left him in Australia, and I suppose he's still there.' Jude's eyes grew rounder. "'What made you part from him?' "'Don't you ask questions, and you won't hear lies.' "'Come then, give me my change, which you've been—' keeping from me for the last quarter of an hour, and I'll romantically vanish up the street of this picturesque city. She handed the change over the counter, in taking which he caught her fingers and held them. There was a slight struggle and titter, and he bade her goodbye and left. Jude had looked on with the eye of a dazed philosopher. It was extraordinary how far removed from his life Arabella now seemed to be. He could not realize their nominal closeness and this being the case in his present frame of mind, he was indifferent to the fact that Arabella was his wife indeed. The compartment that she served emptied itself of visitors, and after a brief thought he entered it, and went forward to the counter. Arabella did not recognize him for a moment. Then their glances met. She started, till a humorous imprudence sparkled in her eyes, and she spoke. "'Well, I'm blessed. I thought you were underground years ago.' "'Oh! I never heard anything of you, or I don't know that I should have come here, but never mind. What shall I treat you to this afternoon? A scotch and soda? Come, anything that the house will afford, for old acquaintance's sake.' "'Thanks, Arabella,' said Jude with a smile. "'But I don't want anything more than I've had.' The fact was that her unexpected presence there had destroyed, at a stroke, his momentary taste for strong liquor as completely as if he had whisked it back with him to his milk-fed infancy. "'Well, that's a pity now. You could have got it for nothing.' "'How long have you been here?' "'About six weeks. I returned from Sydney three months ago. I always liked this business, you know.' "'I wonder you came to this place.' "'Well, as I say, I thought you were gone to glory, and being in London, I saw the situation in an advertisement.' Nobody was likely to know me here, even if I had minded, for I was never in Christminster in my growing up. Why did you return from Australia? Oh, I had my reasons. Then you are not a Don yet? No. Not even a reverend? No. Nor so much as a rather reverend, dissenting gentleman? I am as I was. True, you look so. She idly allowed her fingers to rest on the pole of the beer-engine as she inspected him critically. He observed that her hands were smaller and whiter than when he had lived with her, and that, on the hand which pulled the engine, she wore an ornamental ring set with what seemed to be real sapphires, which they were indeed, and were much admired, as such, by the young men who frequented the bar. "'So you pass as having a living husband?' "'He continued. "'Yes, I thought it might be awkward "'if I called myself a widow as I should have liked. "'True, I've known here a little. "'I didn't mean on that account, "'for as I said, I didn't expect you. "'It was for other reasons. "'What were they?' "'I don't care to go into them,' she replied evasively. "'I make a very good living, "'and I don't know that I want your company. "'Here, a chappie with no chin "'and a mustache like a lady's eyebrow,' came and asked for a curiously compounded drink, and Arabella was obliged to go and attend to him. "'We can't talk here,' she said, stepping back a moment. "'Can't you wait until nine? Say yes and don't be a fool. I can get off duty in two hours sooner than usual if I ask.' "'I'm not living in the house at present.' He reflected and said gloomily, "'I'll come back. I suppose we'd better arrange something.' "'Oh, bother arranging. I'm not going to arrange anything.' But I must know a thing or two, and as you say, we can't talk here. Very well, I'll call for you. Depositing his unemptied glass, he went out and walked up and down the street. Here there was a rude flounce into the pellucid sentimentality of his sad attachment to Sue. Though Arabella's word was completely untrustworthy, he thought there might. Be some truth in her implication that she had not wished to disturb him, and had really supposed him dead. However, there was only one thing now to be done, and that was to play a straightforward part, the law being the law, and the woman between whom and himself there was no more unity than between East and West being in the eye of the church one person with him. Having to meet Arabella here, It was impossible to meet Sue at Alfredston as he had promised. At every thought of this, a pang had gone through him, but the conjecture could not be helped. Arabella was perhaps an indeed intervention to punish him for his unauthorized love. Passing the evening, therefore, in a desultory waiting about the town wherein he avoided the precincts of every cloister and hall because he could not bear to behold them, he repaired to the tavern bar wall the hundred and one strokes were resounding from the great bell of Cardinal College, a coincidence which seemed to him gratuitous irony. The inn was now brilliantly lighted up, and the scene was altogether more brisk and gay. The faces of the barmaidens had risen in color, each having a pink flush on her cheek. Their manners were still more vivacious than before, more abandoned, more exalted, more sensuous, and they expressed their sentiments and desires, less euphemistically, laughing in a lackadaisical tone without reserve. The bar had been crowded with men of all sorts during the previous hour, and he had heard from without the hubbub of their voices, but the customers were fewer at last. He nodded to Arabella, and told her that she would find him outside the door when she came away. "'But you must have something with me first. "'she said with good, great humor. "'Just an early nightcap. "'I always do. "'And then you can go out and wait a minute, "'as it is best we should not be seen going together.' "'She drew a couple of liqueur glasses of brandy, "'and though she had evidently, from her countenance, "'already taken in enough alcohol, "'either by drinking or, more probably, "'from the atmosphere she had breathed in for so many hours, "'she finished hers quickly. "'He also drank his and went outside the house.' In a few minutes she came, in a thick jacket and a hat with a black feather. "'I live quite near,' she said, taking his arm, "'and can let myself in by a latchkey at any time. "'What arrangement do you want to come to?' "'Oh, none in particular,' he answered, "'thoroughly sick and tired, his thoughts again reverting to Alfredston "'and the train he did not go by, "'the probable disappointment of Sue that he was not there when she arrived.' and the missed pleasure of her company on the long and lonely climb by starlight up the hills to Marygreen. I ought to have gone back, really. My aunt is on her deathbed, I fear. I'll go over with you tomorrow morning. I think I could get a day off. There was something particularly uncongenial in the idea of Arabella, who had no more sympathy than a tigress with his relations or him, "'coming to the bedside of his dying aunt and meeting Sue. "'Yet he said, "'Of course, if you'd like to, you can.' "'Well, that we'll consider. "'Now, until we have come to some arrangement, "'it is awkward our being together here, "'where you are known and I am getting known, "'though without any suspicion that I have anything to do with you. "'As we are going towards the station, "'I suppose we shall take the 940 train to Aldbrickham?' We shall be there in a little more than half hour, and nobody will know us for one night, and we shall be quite free to act as we choose till we have made up our minds whether we'll make anything public or not. As you like. Then wait while I get two or three things. This is my lodging. Sometimes, when late, I sleep at the hotel where I am engaged, so nobody will think anything of my staying out. She speedily returned, and they went on to the railway and made the half hour's journey to Aldbrickham where they entered a third rate inn near the station in time for a late supper.